0: being able to find that core belief that we make about ourselves. And for me, it was that, that belief that I didn't matter. I, you know, when I developed that belief, when I decided to believe that I was proving that to myself every day. Mm. So what I had to do is I had to unravel everything and then decide that, you know, that belief wasn't true.
1: This is a great interview and I really appreciated her transparency as she talked about a problem in the family that a lot of people would keep secret or point the blame in any direction but their own. So I really love her accountability and her transparency. It is a beautiful summer day here in Tennessee and I I am about to, in a few episodes, take a little break from podcasting to prep for season two. I'm so thankful that you've been with me all this time, but I'm sort of reconfiguring how I get my guests and relying a little bit less on them reaching out to me and me being a little more intentional about the theme. So let's stay tuned for that. I am certainly enjoying this ride and learning as I go, and it's my hope one day I have a little bit more of a team to help me with it. So fingers crossed. Thanks always for supporting the podcast by listening, by being with me, and for those of you who've hit buy me a cup of coffee as a tip for the podcast, really appreciate it. And just you being here is a super big gift. I know you've got other things going on with your time. So thanks for being here. I always hope you get something from it. And it's great to hear from you. Find me at lameredith.com when you want to make comments that you would like me to respond to. And I will see you in the interview. Colleen Elaine is with me today. And I am so Thrilled that she is because she's talking about something that a lot of us don't talk about, and that is the idea of a problem child in the family and expose the importance of exposing family secrets to make the whole family better. Colleen has a book out that it well, that's about to be out in just a couple of months called. Twenty-eight years to life, and there's a fabulous subtitle. She's going to tell us in a second. But first off, welcome, Colleen. Thanks for being on Persistence. You and I'm so glad that you're here. Well, thank you so much for having me, Lesbeth. I am so super excited to be here and to
0: you know share share my message with your listeners.
1: I love it because as you and I spoke before, I used to work a lot with kids in crisis, particularly juvenile probationers, for twenty years in Alaska and a lot of the times when kids would struggle with substance abuse or with other things parents would sort of disavow themselves and and look at the child like what have you done to this family when actually sometimes not so infrequently there were many other problems at play and the child was just sort of that designated problem child you know so i i am just dying for you to share your story of hope and All of the beautiful things in your family. So please do. Okay, sure. Well, I completely
0: agree with that. You know, and I grew up in a family where everything was swept under the rug. And unbeknownst to me, I kind of carried that over into my own, you know, family life as I was raising my children. Uh, My father was an alcoholic, so there was, you know, substance abuse in the family. My mom, in turn, was um, a workaholic. She didn't want to be around that, so she chose to be gone all the time working. And so I was kind of one of those parentified children where I had to cook dinner and clean and do all the things that my mom wasn't home to do, you know, to help out my other siblings. Um, But so what happened in in my family is that my, my middle child, he he started experimenting with drugs and I just kind of chalked it up to a temporary phase, you know, experimenting with marijuana. And my husband had had some issues with marijuana as well, which had then led to some substance abuse problems with pain medications. Well, this also happened with my son. My, what I didn't know at the time was that my son had progressed from marijuana to using Xanax. He was Mm -hmm. selling it at first and then he started using it. And then from that, he went to opioid use. Oh dear. And then that turned into him injecting the opioids. And what I didn't know until after things got way out of hand and he started committing, you know, theft and crimes, which eventually led to a court situation where I had my wake up moment. Um, Mm. But after that, we learned that it had eventually gotten into meth.
1: Oh, my. So
0: it, it was just a horrific situation. And this whole time, I never told anyone that we were going through this because, of course, I was taught to sweep everything under the rug. And you just you keep your family problems to yourself. And so I wasn't able to reach out to get help from anybody. I was in turn, you know, working, you know, I guess, turning into that workaholic, like my mom, you know, I, I right. was, I had the same parallel of what happened in my childhood. I was recreating it in my own life. Oh,
1: wow. Isn't it weird how we do that? Even, even if we make commitments as young adults or kids, like I will never do X, Y, and Z that my parent did. It's the easiest thing in the world to replicate that dynamic. Exactly. And you don't even realize you're doing it. Wow. Wow. So there you were, your son is getting increasingly out of control, quite frankly. Yes. And you're keeping it together and making it look good. It sounds like it, you know, just kind of making sure that it doesn't inconvenience anyone else and it doesn't look bad.
0: Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the turning points for me was that when my son came home, he'd been gone for a couple of weeks. We didn't know where he was um, and he had come home and my son is six foot two and he was Skin and bones, and I will never forget his eyes when he came home and he asked me if he could have some food. And I'm like, oh my gosh, of course! You know, I, I gathered bags of groceries for him, but his eyes were sunken into his skull, and the pupils—I mean, the the eyes were just so large. I mean, it was like a fear in his eyes. And then as he walked away, I could see the hip bones coming out through his boxers. I mean, it, it was just, he was a skeleton walking. And I mean, I cried so hard that night, but I, I you know, I filled his Jeep up with this food. And then a couple of weeks later, he eventually came home and I went to get some of his clothing out of the car and found the bags of groceries still in the car with frozen waffles were melted. Bread was molded. He never even <laughs> ate the food. So it, the addiction was so bad that he wasn't even eating. So at that point we knew, Oh my God, we've got to do something or our son's going to die. That's terrifying. How old was he at this point? At this point he was, he was, uh, 20,
1: 22 years old. That's so hard because the human brain doesn't finish developing. We know for young men, especially not until 27 or maybe even later and so he's adult by law there's limited things you can force him to do but on the other hand he's a child by brain right and you know he's your child forever and he's suffering so what in the world could you do then well we, what we did is we went to a judge and we filed what's called a Marchman's
0: act and okay. so you know by law you know we we told the judge that You know, it was a necessity for us to get him into custody because we had a younger child at home and we feared for her life. And, you know, and for ours, too, because at one point there were cops that surrounded our house because there was a warrant out for his arrest for some of the thefts that he had, you know, gotten into gotten involved Mm -hmm. with. Um, And so we got a judge to sign the order. And then one of my son's friends reached out to us and told us where he was. So we, we had the authorities go and, um, they actually picked him up that night and they took him to a a rehabilitation center. But the second he walked in, they asked, do you want to be here? And he said, no. So they released him. So all of it was for nothing.
1: Wow. Hopes up and then dashed in a nanosecond. Yes. Oh my goodness. So how long did this go on when it got really bad?
0: So it, it got even worse then because at that point he was furious with us. So he, he took off and we didn't hear for him for probably a month, maybe a little over a month. And then he just happened to call one day and my husband was talking to him and he let it slip where he was, which was about 20 minutes south of where we lived. So my other son and my husband got in the car and went down to get him. And when they found the, the plaza where he was, it was a little um, shopping center There just happened to be a sheriff's deputy in the parking lot. So my husband ran up to him and told him, there's a warrant out for his arrest. You need to go get that guy in that store. He described him and they actually went in and they, they got his name. I think, I think my son may have given a false name, but they did, you know, eventually get the name out of him and they arrested him at that time. And then once my son was taken into custody and we were able to talk to him by phone, he told us how grateful he was to have gotten into that car because he said the second he was taken into that car, he immediately fell asleep and he knew that this nightmare was over, that he was going to, he was going to live because he, he couldn't get out of it himself. He had to be taken into custody
1: in order for this to stop. And in the strangest way, because I've worked with other parents whose kid didn't have an outstanding warrant, So in the strangest way committing that crime and having the warrant was really so helpful because there's nothing more frustrating than knowing where your child is, knowing that they need help and yet not being able to force it like you tried before. Um, So good, good that there was a warrant and good that your child had that recognition of like, whoa, I needed this. Also, good for you all for standing firm and saying, hey, you need the police to come take care of this warrant and, and, you know, move it forward in the justice system if that's what needs to happen to save you. Because again, a lot of people are very, very, and rightly so, sometimes things don't always go well, but, you know, fearful of the person who struggles to be held accountable in the justice system. So it was great that you all had that reaction.
0: Yeah. And, like, and the way we looked at it was that the alternative was receiving a knock on our door. And right. our son had been killed, you right. know, or di- or Absolutely. died from a drug overdose. And we couldn't live with ourselves if we didn't do everything in our power to to help right. stop this for
1: him. Oh, that is so fantastic. So he gets in, he's at there for a warrant and the warrant is served. He's in in probably a temporary place for a little while while you're going through court. And then what happened? So the day that we went
0: to court for a sentencing, he was actually facing 10 years he had multiple charges because mm-hmm. when when you commit a crime, when you steal something and then you pawn it, you've got multiple charges. You've got the theft. You've got the defrauding a pawnbroker, um, you know, that people can file as civil charges. So there's multiple charges. And he had several different cases like this. So he mm-hmm. was in, in Florida. There's a point system. So he was facing 10 years. He ended up getting seven years, um, you know, which. I thought was an awful lot for, you know, for the crimes, but I had prayed for him to, to get what he needed. And so I was okay with the seven years that he got. And my son actually said that it took him a minimum of four years while in prison to actually come out of the situation that he was in to really recognize that, you know, that's not the life he wanted to live and, you know, in doing that, he and I had talked extensively. I mean, we talked, we talked every week. So I was sending him books to change his mindset and programs to study. And, you know, again, it, it, it took that long for him to realize that he needed to turn his
1: life around. Wow. That's a long time for yes. him to have that epiphany. That's fantastic. So he didn't, you know, he did okay while he was serving time. Is that correct? And then did he serve the whole time? He served uh, just over six
0: years. um, Toward the end of the sixth year, they sent him, you know, for good behavior, he was sent to a work facility near our home, about 30, about 30, 35 miles away from our home, where he was able to go to this facility. He got a job at a restaurant. And so he rode a bicycle eight miles to the restaurant and eight miles back every single day of the week. And worked at this restaurant. He made some money, so therefore he was there about, um, I think, somewhere around two to maybe three months. So he was able to, you know, get a certain amount of money, so that when he came home, he would at least have some money to start with. And they also offered a program where he could have furloughs, so he was able to come home for a half a day the first time on a Sunday, and then every Sunday after that, he was able to come home for an eight-hour stay. So yeah. we were able well, to reacclimate him back into the family and into
1: society. So it was an excellent program that he was able to get into. Good, good, good. That is a long time in my mind. I mean, I don't know what his specific crimes were, but that's kind of a long time for a crime where no one is violently assaulted or yes, yeah, so there was no violence. Killed. Cases. So that's wow. That was that was some time he served. And then what happened as he was reintegrating? What did your family do in the? in the background to get healthy?
0: Uh, so in the background, um, this is where, while my son was away, I discovered hypnotherapy because I was working on my own mindset. You know, when I sat in the courtroom waiting for my son to be sentenced, you know, the question I was asking myself was how, how did we get here? You know, I, I thought I was a good mom. I thought I did everything right. And so I had to do a lot of soul searching during this whole entire time, my son was gone. And, you know, we visited him quite often, even though he was five hours away from our home, we made it a point to, you know, visit as often as we could. So I worked a lot on my own mindset. So I was reading the same books that I was sending him and, you know, I would read them first and then I would discover, okay, this is a great book for him to read. So I would send it to him. And then I discovered the hypnotherapy. So I was working on myself and having some hypnotherapy sessions myself So that I could get the right mindset to where when he came home, we wouldn't repeat the same
1: patterns over again. Interesting. Okay. Did you go to any other kinds of interventions like regular therapy or anything else that was useful or was it all pretty much hypnotherapy? It it was only hypnotherapy. I didn't go
0: through any other counseling. I I did attend one counseling session with someone before my son went in. I I had gone to see her for my own mental health around the situation around my son. And then I had scheduled a session for my son and I brought him to her. And so he had an hour long session with her. And when he came out, she said to me, I cannot help your son. Wow! And when she told me that, and of course, everything is confidential. So she couldn't tell me why she couldn't help my son. Right. But in that moment, I, I was done with therapy. I thought, well, if you can't help my son, then there's no point in me coming back because, right. you know, so I that's when I decided to continue looking for what I needed for me and for him.
1: Interesting. Well, I think of hypnotherapy personally as like, okay, I need to lose weight or I need to smoke or are there repressed memories that are, you know, so how did that work? Yes.
0: So that's exactly what it was for me is that I, um, and, and this goes right in line with the title of my book. So my, the, the, my book title is 28 years to life. So the, The reason behind that title is because I had held a secret deep inside of me that I never spoke about for 28 years. Okay. So with this whole process of everything that happened with my son, I had an aha moment that back when I was 17 years old, I had gone out on a date with someone and I was drugged and raped. And I woke up on a mattress inside a garage on the, you know, on a mattress on the floor naked. So I had to find my clothes. And when I got home, I was really, you know, I I was traumatized from the the incident, what had happened, but I was more fearful of what was going to happen when I walked through that door. And my dad was going to, you know, just be, you know, screaming and yelling and cussing at me because I had been gone all night. You know, I had a very strict father. And and like I mentioned before, he was an alcoholic. So when I walked in the house that morning, it was silent. My brother and sisters were sleeping. My parents were sleeping and no one even knew I had been gone all night. So in that moment, I decided to believe that I did not matter. So I shoved what happened to me way deep down inside. I went, showered all the evidence, the physical evidence away. And I never spoke about it until the day after my father died, which was 28 years later.
1: Wow. Okay. Okay. And, and, so, and the day after he died, what was the significance that did something just break loose in you when he passed?
0: Yes. It was like the last couple months of his life. I didn't know my father was dying, um, but he had been hospitalized. He was having some issues with his kidneys, but something had been building inside of me. Um, you know, it was like a pressure cooker, and something was wanting to come out. But I didn't know what it was. But in that moment, that that next day after my dad had passed, it just, you know, it came out when I was speaking to my mom. I I told her what had happened and how scared I was and what my father would have thought. He would have blamed me, you know, it would have been my fault because that was the conditioning that I received as a child that, you know, if something like that happens to you, you obviously did something to attract it to yourself. Right. And so my mom kind of, you know, listened and swept it under the rug and never spoke about it again. So I didn't really even get any validation at that point. So I, again, I was in search of healing myself from holding and harboring that secret for those 28 years because I felt like that had kept me in sort of a groundhog's day of living. I wasn't fully living because I was harboring the secret that I didn't even know was
1: affecting me in that way. So interesting. That's so interesting. Now, how did the rest of the family start healing and getting better as your son was incarcerated? Well, that's the the very interesting thing, because as I was
0: healing myself and as I was opening up and opening up the lines of communication, it seemed to have a positive effect on everyone. Wow. So I, I have this belief of, you know, for myself that when you heal the woman, you heal the family because that was my experience. Everything I did to heal myself ended up having a
1: ripple effect in my family for the better. Oh, that is fantastic. That really is. That's so terrific to hear. So by the time your son was finally released, what was that like when it was like, okay, we are done? Um, At least with the incarceration, he can move home. We're finished with the work camp situation. He's back home. What was your family change like then? That was absolutely amazing because I
0: had the, the woman that trained me, her name's Marissa Pierce. So I had gone to Miami to do my training and I had gone there with the intention of getting a, a session for myself around healing so that we would have, you know, a beautiful family reunion and have a brand new foundation to start with. So when I went, I actually did receive a session with her. And so that was what she did, the hypnotherapy with me on. It's uh, rapid transformational therapy is the type of therapy. It's called RTT. And I had an amazing moment. Um, Can I tell you about the metaphoric? Sure. Oh, okay. So make it, yeah. So people understand. Yes. Okay. So, so what happened was that, after the session, I, I just I just kind of felt very different. Like I was more self aware, you know, more um, awakened as to what was going on around me, and I wasn't kind of, you know, it was like the veil had had lifted. That's mm-hmm. I, I guess a better way to say it. And I was out looking at a piece of property. At this point, I was still doing real estate appraising, and so there was this this clear ball in the yard as I pulled up to this property and the sunlight was shining on it and it was glistening. And so I got out of the car. I mean, it definitely got my attention and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, you know, normally I I would pick that ball up, but for some reason I just admired it and thought, no, I'm I'm not going to pick that up. That belongs to somebody, maybe a child around here or something. So it's just beautiful. I'm going to leave it on the ground. And then when I got home about an hour later, my husband, he works um, on the property next door. And so he had come home and he said, you're never going to believe what I found in the garage next door. And I said, don't even tell me it's a ball. And he's like, how did you know? And he opened up his hands and inside his hands now hit the ball that he found was a little red ball. But in that moment, it hit me that I didn't pick up the ball in that yard because that's what I had a tendency to do. I was picking up Other people's responsibilities instead of letting them, you know, interesting pick up their own. But it, it was like something happened within my mind that allowed me to see the symbolism of the ball, you know, the ball that I saw, and then the ball that he found, and he actually
1: picked it up. Oh, that is really neat. So it's so interesting because. So the role of uh, what people recognize is the role of the enabler, yes. the person who runs around cleaning up the messes of other people, and you realize that that was not going to fit anymore. So you didn't pick up that ball and, uh, you know, let your husband step up and do it. And I mean, that's terrific.
0: Yes. That, and so, which is good. so in that moment, I knew, okay, I I can't be that person anymore. So codependency yeah. is a lot to do with this. I knew that sure. I had those codependency um issues and so i had to recognize and be aware of any single time that i was leaning towards that to take a step back and
1: a pause and say no that's not the right thing to do good well that is that's really exciting how long did it take how long did uh hypnotherapy take would you say how many sessions did you have before you really saw that transformation begin take root i only had the one session with her. Wow.
0: Okay. And then, so, so this experience that happened after I had the session was about two weeks after I had the session. So what happens with this hypnotherapy that, that I specialize in, um, the client gets a recording and the recording is the transformation part. And so they listen to that recording for 21 days after the session. So it's continuing to rewire those new neural pathways for the, you know, the transformation to take hold. So it was within that time
1: period that, that I had that, you know, symbolic. I love it. Now it was important that you front loaded the work with the readings that you were doing too, right? Right. You were open to making changes and you were reading all of those things to help shift the dynamic and learn what healing needed to take place. And then you did this. That's very interesting. Well, great. So today, what tell, tell us about a little bit about the book and how that came together because a lot of times, you know, I I loved reading that your book experience writing about family secrets has been really positive. That's not always the case. So (laughs) (laughs) tell us about that process and what you want your readers to take away when the book is published soon. Okay. Yes. So the process of writing this
0: book, it actually took me, um, the entire time my son was gone to write the book. It took me about six years to write the book. And I actually finished it in 2018. My mom was in hospice and she was, you know, she was dying at that time. And I had been my mom's sole caregiver for the prior, I think, five or six years. And so there, there were some issues between my mom and I around around forgiveness. And, I, you know, I won't give you all the details because I don't, you know, give away a, a little too much about the book. But um, I actually finished the book when my mom passed. And, you know, Ryan had an opportunity to say goodbye to my mom through the phone because they had had a an estranged relationship, but they actually healed it toward the right. end of my mom's life, which was nice. Um, but, the you know, what I want readers to take away from my book is that. I feel like we're all led to betray ourselves by the way we're conditioned by our families and by society and, you know, trying to live up to the expectations of our parents and others. And so when we're doing that, we're betraying, you know, our own values, our own interests and our own wants and needs. And so being able to find that core belief that we make about ourselves. And for me, it was that, that belief that I didn't matter. I, you know, when I, Develop that belief when I decided to believe that I was proving that to myself every day Mm. So what I had to do is I had to unravel everything and then decide that, you know, that belief wasn't true And it was only then that I could find forgiveness for myself and also forgiveness for people that I felt did things, you know Bad things to me or wrong things to me. I had to forgive them too and they may not even have known that I felt that they had done something wrong to me. But I was holding myself hostage by not forgiving them and not forgiving
1: myself. And what did your son think of his new family dynamic when he came home? Did he notice or remark right away the change? Yes, absolutely. You know, he came back a changed person
0: too. He was more of the the younger self that I knew him to be because he he's always been a good person. It was just, he was a different person when he had, you know, that stronghold of the drugs. Um, but he came back with a powerful motivation to really make something of himself. He realized that he lost, you know, more than six years of his life. And, you know, he came out with gusto and with, um, resolve and just, this incredible ambition. And he actually has started a um, a shoe business. It's called Flight School Custom Footwear, where he makes custom shoes. He has another job. He works as well, but he, he is an amazing artist. And he discovered this talent while he was away. Oh, and he fantastic. knew that that's what he wanted to do with his life.
1: The key to recidivism from somebody who worked in the system forever is You know, if you don't want people to reoffend, don't take away their ability or, or rather add the ability to contribute to society. Teach people to own their own business if, in fact, they have crimes that make it difficult to work in the regular workplace or, you know, those kinds of skills. We all need to be needed and feel included in the world that we're creating. So that's so fantastic that he's got that going for himself and some other things. He's not afraid of work, it sounds like. Right. And he was, he was most appreciative
0: of the support that he received from us as a family while he was incarcerated, because he saw so many people that had no one. And, you know, it just really disturbed him to think, you know, he thought back and, and, and was thinking that, you know, he had it bad at one point, but he realized in seeing the situation that others were going through that he was really blessed with a wonderful, supportive family. And that's, You know, that was the key to his survival through everything.
1: I love it. And I'm glad that he did not take that for granted because that's definitely a true thing that so many people can't even tell you what both of their parents' names are if they're heavily caught up in the system. They didn't grow up with that family background sometimes or a good family background. And so it's really good that he saw that he had some assets in his corner. Yeah, and and this whole experience has just
0: really opened the lines of communication, and it made me and probably everyone in my family realize how important you know honest communication is when you're going through
1: something, mm-hmm. and not keeping secrets and not worrying about so much what other people think. But that is hard. Yes, that's really hard, especially if you've grown up in a family that doesn't necessarily agree with that. So good for you. That's really exciting. Where can people connect with you? And find out more about your book. Maybe sign up for your email list or whatever to know about your book as it gets released. Okay. Yes. So I have a website.
0: It's www.colleenelaine.com, and on that website, they can uh, get a free gift. I have a meditation three pack. It's actually it's a meditation for women. It's called for the woman who does too much, but men could listen to it too. Uh, And if you know, if they want more information about my book, they could fill out the contact me form and I will put them on a new list for my book release.
1: And now you're able also to work with people who want to have hypnotherapy for themselves. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story. And it is so incredibly powerful and so hopeful. So I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I I
0: really appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thank you so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, tell a friend and go ahead and give us a review. I'll see you next week. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.